they heard his mother scream his name and call for help, and that he had run down the stairs and found her at the foot of the stairs. And one of the things I told the jury afterward was that he had a previous murder conviction for violence, but the judge wouldn't let me bring it to the jury. I walked in to the behavioral analysis unit, sat down in the consulting room, and I literally felt every single thing that happened to this kid. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hello and welcome to Best Case, Worst Case. This is Jim Clemente, retired FBI profiler, former New York City prosecutor and writer-producer of CBS's Criminal Minds. And with me today is... Hi, everybody. It's Francie Hakes, former state and federal prosecutor. Jim, I am on assignment again. I'm sad we're not in the studio together. Yeah, well... Nolens is a great place to be if you're going to be on assignment. <laughs> so I'm glad that you're at a place where you can certainly enjoy yourself and hopefully not destroy an entire city. Well, I'll do my best. <laughs> okay. Well, with us today as our very special return guest is... Hi, everybody. Kay Winfrey. Uh, I am also a retired state and federal prosecutor, now actually retired completely, except as a grandmother and teaching a, an undergraduate class at American University. Oh, that's so great. Uh, I've done a couple of guest lectures at American, and uh, I love that school. It's a great place. I may have to get you on then, on the schedule. Oh, well, sure. That'll be great. Uh, what are you teaching? It's an introduction to justice systems, basically introduction to criminal law. And I had my first class last Monday, August 26th, 8, 10 in the morning, all oh. but Two, oh, it was fine. All but two of my students are freshmen. So this was their first day of college, their very first class, and oh, I got wow. to teach them. It's pretty cool. Yeah. And, you know, when I was in Fordham, I was a chemistry major at undergrad, but I wanted to take a course to see what it would be like maybe to go to law school. And there was a professor who had just kind of retired from teaching at the law school. So he started teaching constitutional criminal law at Fordham undergrad. So I jumped on that course and I took it. And of course, he did it with the Socratic method and, you know, basically grilled everybody and put us under the, you know, spotlight all the time. And I loved it. I loved reading about the cases. I thought every case was a new mystery. And then especially with constitutional law, I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Didn't you just say with pretty much exactly the same facts, something completely different last time? So I really learned how argument is what being a lawyer is all about, not black and white, because right. they can make anything sound like something it isn't, and they can make whatever they want. The facts don't necessarily control. It's sort of how they want to interpret the facts that actually controls. And that really opened up a lot in terms of how I looked at the law. And of course, every lawyer has to look at the law because you never know what side you're going to be on on a particular fact pattern. And you have to be able to find not only what will help your client, but you also have to predict what the other side might argue and try to be able to counter that. Right? Right. And that's particularly true in the courtroom. Uh, it's often said that trials are not about getting to the truth. It's about each side presenting a version that they want the jury to, to believe. And 
being a lawyer is as much about acting as it is about speaking. All those things go together. So absolutely. The courtroom becomes your stage. Yes, it's a show. That's exactly what I was going to say. And it doesn't necessarily, it's not a show that actually either side really has the opportunity to give all of the facts that they want to give because it's limited by the rules of evidence. And it may also be limited by time. It may be limited by access. It may be limited by the you know, whim of, of a witness or two. And it may be limited by you know, people who aren't telling the truth and who are trying to give a certain perspective that isn't actually accurate. So there's all sorts of things that can end up being, um, you know, major factors in a trial. And it's really nerve wracking, isn't it? It's very nerve wracking and, and, and unpredictable because no matter how much you prepare your own witnesses and for thinking what the other side is going to pre- present, something surprising will happen. And so it's as much about thinking on your feet as anything else and, and, and learning to roll with the punches and not let the jury know how upset you might be by something that's just happened or ruling or a, a witness spinning you. You just have to keep going with it and make the best of it. But that's what makes it so exciting. It is. There is nothing more exciting than trying a case. And it's the one thing that I really, really miss, Kay. I don't miss all the bureaucracy and the paperwork and the filings and the motions. I don't miss any of that. But I really do miss the courtroom. And most of all, I miss cross-examining defendants and I miss giving closing arguments. Those were the most exciting, heart-pounding moments of my whole life were spent in the courtroom. And I always felt like that was my office. That's where I belonged. Well, I totally agree with that. I, I love cross-examining defendants. I've, I've heard other prosecutors say that they don't want it. They don't, they don't like it because it's so hard to prepare for it. But I always prepare for a cross-examination of a defendant. If they don't take the stand, then at least you, you still, it's not a waste of time. My other mm-hmm. favorite part of the trial is rebuttal because that's nobody can nobody gets to come back and contradict anything that you've said and you can take a little bit of chances there and you know maybe use an analogy that you wouldn't dare say in the first part of your closing argument because you don't want it to get you know slammed down your throat but those are those are my two favorite parts too for sure well you've got some great experience Kay you were a state and federal prosecutor for a very long time you've now retired which is well deserved after the career you've had you've seen some truly horrific cases. I know you've dealt with a lot of victims. Uh, You have a case to talk to us about today. So where were you, Kay, uh, in your career when this case came in? This was in August of 2001, and I was deputy state's attorney in the state's attorney's office. That's what we call them in the district attorney's office in Montgomery County, Maryland, where I was living at the time. Great. And what what were you doing? Do you remember what you were doing on the day that this case came in? I was in my office, I think just talking to someone, I don't recall who, about an unrelated matter. And uh, I got a call from a homicide detective that there had been a murder and I was asked to come to the scene. Let's talk about that a little bit, Kay. I mean, I think it's something that uh, is sometimes portrayed right uh, on the movies and and, in television and Hollywood and sometimes isn't. And I think it's also not the same from district attorney to district attorney. So was it a normal thing for you as a prosecutor to be called to the scene of a murder versus just sort of seeing it in photographs or on video later? 
So there were two things that would happen. Um, all of the we had an arrangement with the homicide division in the Montgomery County Police Department that we would get notification of any homicide, and those calls would come to me or the other deputy state's attorney. We also always had what I would call is a, a list of prosecutors who would be the next up, if you will, to take a homicide, um, so that uh, they would be prepared to talk to the police that were investigating. They would be the, the point people from the state's attorney's office. In this particular case, I was both. I was the person who was getting the call about the homicide, and I was also one of the people I was next on the list to handle the next incoming homicide. So I got the call uh, to come to the scene. And what do you think about going to the scene? Like, How does that affect your ability to prosecute the case? I think it's almost essential. It is it, uh, photographs are second best, of course, and there are some cases where I, that I prosecuted that it just wasn't logistically possible for the prosecutors to to physically be there. But in mm -hmm. most cases, the county police welcomed us, and 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 I just felt we we got a a greater perspective to see to see the scene, often to see the body as it as it was before the body was removed from the scene. So I, I thought it was invaluable. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I mean, the fact that you're there, I mean, you know, they say a picture paints a thousand words, but being there paints a million. Um, it does, because you see the perspectives, you see the ingress and egress, you see how private it was and or how out in the open it was. There's so many little details that you can't tell unless you literally have a 360 degree camera that shows you everything so you can look around. But when you're there and you're in it, it's a lot easier to understand actually the logistics of what, what happened and how this murder or other crime was committed. Yeah, but it gives you insights that you might not at the time think you're going to need, but ultimately if you end up having to try a case and there's not a plea, you've seen things, you've heard things, you've smelled things that you otherwise would not have had access to. And that informs the way that you present a case to the jury. Yeah, I agree. Francie, what do you think? No, I completely agree. I mean, I think it's really important. I, there was a child homicide case I tried, Kay, when I was uh, a prosecutor in South Georgia in a little town called Albany, Georgia. And I did not have... I was just there last weekend. In Albany, Georgia? In Albany, Georgia. I'm a Georgia girl. My mother was born there and I've got relatives there. And my oldest cousin died and was buried on Friday of last week. I was in Albany, Georgia. Well, oh, I'm, we're really I'm sorry, sorry for your about loss. your cousin, you. but um, can I just you. inappropriately now geek out because I cannot believe I'm just now finding out you're a Georgia girl. Well, I don't sound like it. <laughs> you don't. We've talked for I hours, know. Kay. I, I feel know. like we were closer friends than this. <laughs> How did I not know this? Anyway, uh, in Albany, Georgia, which is Doherty County, which is the place where prosecutors go to die, frankly, because <laughs> it's very difficult to get a conviction in that place, no matter what the evidence is. But I didn't have the opportunity to go to the scene of this child homicide because in that particular county, that's not the practice. District attorneys, assistant district attorneys don't go to murder scenes. And so the case was presented to me afterward, and I had to see it in, in photographs and after the autopsy even. And so 
you're absolutely right. It would have been so valuable for me to go there. Fortunately, in that particular case, the defense was claiming that the child uh, had fallen from a bed and that that had caused a, just these massive skull fractures. Um, it would have been very helpful to me to see that scene and to see the bedroom. But the, the police department did a really good job in taking measurements and lots of photographs so that we were able to present uh, sufficient evidence to the jury. I've talked about this case before on the podcast. Um, it was a terrible, terrible tragedy. Yeah, but it I would remember. have been better if I had been able to go to the scene case. So I completely agree with you. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, I think it also uh, is useful to go to autopsies. Those are difficult, but um, mm. uh, I've seen things at autopsies that I gave me an understanding of things that I've seen that I would never have said to a jury, but I've used in, in sentencing proceedings to tell the judge things that I had seen. And, and I think that that also gives you a better appreciation of the injuries that were inflicted. And I agree with you, particularly in a child, uh, a child homicide. Uh, so often, the injuries are attributed to a fall, which we all know is just ridiculous. And that constellation of injuries that you see in child abuse to, to see those in an autopsy. I mean, that's tough. It's tough as a parent to tough as anybody to go, but as a parent, it's really hard to see that directly. Okay. You know, I want to know how that impacts you today. I mean, we talked, Jim and I have talked a lot about some of the things that we've seen in our career. And I always say that the worst thing I've ever had to see is, you know, video of children being uh, sexually assaulted. And those images will never leave my head. I mean, you can't forget them. You can't unsee them. Do you find the same is true for you from all the different murder cases and child abuse cases that you've prosecuted? It's interesting you asked that. I, I was actually talking to someone else recently about it. And while I was actively doing these cases, I, I must have had some defense mechanism, some way of, I won't say compartmentalizing, but perhaps that what it was, that's what it was, of boxing it off and putting it in, the, the, the emotions about it in some other part of, of my consciousness. I don't know that you can get through it if you, if you don't have that ability. But oddly enough, since I stopped doing it, and especially since I retired, I, I will every now and then find my mind wandering back to one of these cases and feeling really somewhat overcome with emotion. And really? it just, I don't know what that is. And I actually have talked to someone else that recently retired, a former colleague from the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. who did homicides for many, many, many years. And she said she's experienced the same thing. She's now retired and in Florida and has a pool and a dog and, a, you know, a great life. But she says sometimes it comes, it just comes flooding back. So I have a theory about that and I'll discuss it with you if you'd like. Of course. Um, yeah. So when you're actually in the mix, when you're actually prosecuting cases, you have a whole bunch of cases in your caseload. You have all these victims that you have to interview. You have these cops and you have all this evidence and you have all this procedure you have to worry about. You literally need to have what's what I call a clinical detachment. And it's so that you can actually function in this environment with all these horrible things happening and these horrible things you're seeing and discussing and presenting to the jurors that what I think you do is you create sort of a wall and 
that wall keeps you from feeling emotionally so you can present, so you can be the professional, so you can actually see past the emotion and actually look at the facts and present the facts. Because as much as you might want to be very emotional in front of the jury, it, it doesn't present professionally that way. And you, you have to maintain that sort of professional distance. But when time goes on, when that clinical detachment sort of wears off after time, I think those emotions, they're still stored up in there. You still experience those things, but you never let yourself experience the emotions. And I think that's why they come back to you. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, but it can be an overwhelming thing. I think that's exactly right. And it, it maybe it's a form of PTSD. Uh, as you said, you can't unsee things that you've seen. And we would be less than human if they didn't impact us in some way. It happened to me when I, I actually got cancer in the middle of my career. And uh, you know, I was a first responder on 9-11. And um, I got cancer and had to have a bone marrow transplant. Oh, and, sorry. Uh, I was actually at Hopkins, actually, when I where I had my bone marrow transplant. They saved my life there. And I'm deeply indebted to Maryland and Baltimore and Johns Hopkins University and the medical great center. Great hospital. That is it is. Indeed. It's the best. It, it is, is the best hospital in the world. Yes. But um, when I, I, you know, so that whole process took about six months for me to recover before I went back to work. And I, I can tell you the very first case that I walked in to the behavioral analysis unit, sat down in the consulting room and listened to the facts of this case. I literally felt like I, I felt every single thing that happened to this kid. And, and I just was like, blown away. I was, what's happening? I couldn't believe it, but I had lost that clinical detachment and I literally was feeling it viscerally. I was in such, you know, I was so weak physically because, you know, I was literally just coming back from, from death because they literally kill you with chemo to do the bone marrow transplant and then rescue you with the stem cells. And so I was very, I felt like I could feel every single cell in my body and what ended up happening was, though, that, you know, I took another six months to teach so I, I could kind of build that back up again before I went back out on these cases again, because it was literally just too powerful, overwhelmingly. I would think so. I, I'm, I'm glad you took that time. Were you able to get back to where you thought you needed to be? I did, yes. And so for the last then, then for the last five years of my career, I was able to uh, still work cases and uh, travel the country doing, unfortunately, mostly child abduction and child abduction homicide cases. But I was able to, in that time, at least help save a few kids along the way and uh, put a lot of bad people away because, uh, you know, we caught them doing what they did. I'm, I'm sure you both had people tell you, I don't know how you do what you do. Oh, yeah. And sometimes you Absolutely. think, I'm not sure I know either, but I do. Uh, and and I think we've all had careers that, that are very meaningful, but there are these side effects and these collateral consequences, if you will. And it's just part of the life that we lead in the after uh, aftermath of having done these kinds of serious cases. So true, Kay. I mean, I, I found that to be true when, when Jim and I were doing uh, an episode on that particular child homicide case uh, of Darius Sweet. It was overwhelming for me to be talking about it again. And as we closed the podcast, uh, Jim and I were sitting in, in the booth and I was just sitting there crying. Um, 
it, just feeling overwhelmed for the emotions. And so, well, I hate to take you back to another one, but let's go back to a, a case that you're talking about. You were in your office and you get a call and there's been a murder and, you know, you, you put on your prosecutor hat and you head for the scene. Tell us what happens. So I headed over first to the office of um, my colleague, Debbie Armstrong, who was on that list with me to do the next case. And we drove over to the scene, uh, probably about a 15 minute drive. The courthouse is located in Rockville. And this crime scene was in Potomac, Maryland, which is a pretty nice area of suburban Washington in Montgomery County. Uh, Lots of big homes and, and wealthy people. Uh, live there. And the house that we uh, drove up to was a pretty big house, had a pool in the backyard. Um, There were plenty of police out there. Um, There was a a, a police officer stationed at the uh, end of the driveway with a list. That's pretty typical of crime scenes. There's a patrol officer keeping a list of who comes and goes. And so we had to show ID and be write our names down. And then we went into the house. The victim was in the basement. The The house was large uh, and there was a very large basement. And we went into the house, uh, went down into the basement where we understood that um, the victim still was and she was lying at the foot of the stairs. The scene was very, very bloody. She was very bloody. There was blood on the floor, blood on the walls. The victim was married to, to, her name was Marianne Owais, and her husband, uh, Dr. Owais, was an OBGYN who had an office in the basement of their home and also an office in D.C. When we arrived on the scene, he had been taken to uh, police uh, headquarters to be interviewed. So we were, I believe at the time that we got there, the medical examiner, um, they always call a medical examiner to the scene um, before the body is transported. And I believe that that had not yet happened. And it, it, it took some time. And we were there but for it, some hours. Was it obvious from the scene how she was killed? Um, it was obvious that she had head trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, there was so much blood, you could not tell how many, uh, how many wounds she had or whether she had suffered injuries elsewhere on her body. She was still in a, a house coat. It was early in the morning and she had not, she had not dressed to go out for the day. So we were there for several hours while the scene was being processed. We talked to the crime scene technicians about particular photographs that we wanted in, you know, in conjunction with the detectives who were conducting the investigation. And then at some point, my colleague Debbie and I left to go back to police headquarters uh, to talk with the police about what kind of evidence they had and what their theories were. And what what did they say? I mean, what was their theory as to what happened? Hey, y'all know true crime is my passion, but even I need the occasional break. When I feel like I need that palate cleanser, my go-to refresher is Best Fiends. Best Fiends has challenging puzzles, but it's a casual game that anyone can play, and you can spend as much time or as little time as you'd like in the game. 
I keep regressing level after level, collecting characters, strategizing about how to use them in the next level. It's actually a lot like true crime with solving puzzles and you have to make strategic decisions. You collect characters and points and gold and you move forward. And it's very exciting when you solve a puzzle. Best Fiends is a unique and exciting puzzle experience, unlike any other puzzle games out there. It updates the game monthly with new levels and events, so it never gets old. Best Fiends treats the game like a service for their players. You don't have to have the internet to play. It's great for traveling. That's where I use it a lot, on a plane, on a subway. It's great when you're in line at Starbucks, anywhere. You can engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters too. It's a five-star rated mobile puzzle game on the Apple App Store and Google Play. Download it for free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, best fiends. Y'all, once summer is over, does it seem to you like it's hard to get back into your post-summer routine? Well, You can simplify your morning and your evening with a simpler electric toothbrush from Quip. Quip is one of the first electric toothbrushes accepted by the American Dental Association. They're backed by over 25,000 dental professionals, and they have thousands of verified five-star reviews. There's also a brush for kids. The new brush is the same as our original version, just tweaked for size down mouths. Kids are inspired to brush better and more often with oral care that looks and feels like the products the adults in their life use. You can help them develop a grown-up routine without childish gimmicks. Quip has sensitive sonic vibrations for an effective clean that's gentle on your sensitive gums. My favorite is the built-in two-minute timer that pulses every 30 seconds and reminds me when to switch sides so I know that I'm cleaning my mouth and gums thoroughly. That's why I love Quip, and that's why it's perfect for getting you back into a routine. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com slash bestcase right now, you can get your first refill pack for free. That's your first refill pack free at G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash best case. I mean, obviously, in many homicides, especially of women, I think the when you're talking about married women it or any really married person, the first suspect is the spouse. Well, and he was a suspect. He was on the scene when the police arrived. I believe that he had called the police his he had two sons. One of them, Omar, was on the scene. Uh, he had been upstairs asleep with his girlfriend, which I remember at the time thinking that was pretty liberal of his parents to let his girlfriend stay overnight. <laughs> but she was up there. Their younger son had gone off to soccer practice in the morning. I believe, to the best of my recollection, uh, all of those people had been taken to police headquarters by the time I got to the scene. Uh, And then when we went back, it was pretty obvious that Dr. Owase was a suspect. He claimed that his wife had been attacked. He had conflicting stories. He told the police she'd been attacked. He said she fell. He said he had not touched her, even though he's a physician. And instinct would say that you would, if you found your wife in a pool of blood, as a physician particularly, you would see if you could help if she were dead. He said he hadn't touched her, and yet he had blood everywhere, but the, the particular kind of blood he had was, it was blood spatter. Oh, really? Um, so he had can yeah, you ex- little yeah, Can you of- explain that, Kay? Now, listen, yeah. we have very sophisticated listeners, and so they're big true crime fans, so they may know the answer to this. But for the new ones, what is the difference between, say, blood spatter and what you might get if you kneeled in someone's blood to try to render aid or 
or revive them. So typically, blood spatter uh, is caused by, let's say in this instance, we ultimately determined that um, the victim had been struck in the head repeatedly. So the first blow, there's, you know, there's no blood spatter that comes back. What happens is that the head is hit, for example, and then blood starts to, uh, to come out of a wound. And then the weapon comes again. And if the weapon is then pulled back from repeatedly, that it's that action of pulling the weapon away from the, from the object or the, the victim and then bringing it down again, the spatter comes both from, it can be sort of two different ways, flying off the end of a weapon as that weapon is brought back, or by, and that we tend to see on the walls, or when the victim is struck again, the blood will actually spurt up or splatter up, spatter up from the wound onto the wall or an object, or in this case, the, the physical person of the husband. And so he had specks of blood on his eyeglasses, on his clothing, his belt, his wristwatch. It was pretty obvious that the story that he had told the police about her falling or being attacked didn't make any sense um, because it was inconsistent with the physical evidence that they were seeing. Well, actually, it did make sense, but it made sense only in the sense that he must have been present for the attack for him to get blood spatter on him, right? Exactly. Exactly. So so he he gave information that was inconsistent with somebody else attacking her, unless, of course, he just sat back and watched it. Right. But often we catch defendants um, giving these false exculpatory statements that are so inconsistent with the facts that, or with physical evidence that it's those lies that cat, that we catch them in that helps establish their guilt. Right. So he was arrested that day. The police recovered uh, all of the items of clothing that he had been wearing that were that were covered in blood. Ultimately, they were tested, and the blood was found to be um, his wife's. His, the The son was interviewed. The son that was home, Omar, he said that he had been asleep with his girlfriend, that he heard his mother scream for his name, scream his name and call for help, and that he had run down the stairs and found her at the foot of the stairs in the basement. And by the time he got down there, she was obviously dead. So that's what we knew at that point. Um, mm. the, the son had no blood on him. His clothes were recovered. It was pretty clear he was never considered a suspect, pretty clear that he had not been involved. And the girlfriend also corroborated his version of what I just told you about being awakened by the, the victim screaming for help. So you have an obvious suspect, um, the husband. You've got a, a woman who's clearly been murdered through some sort of head trauma. And you've got a, a kind of an eyewitness there who's obviously not guilty. What, what steps uh, did you guys take next to try to either charge someone or figure out whether the husband could be charged? Well, he was... He was charged that day based on the physical evidence and based on the the inconsistent story that he told. Um, as most investigations do, this one got better over time. In, during the investigation, we learned that the victim, Marianne Owais, had, had been away most of the summer. Uh, Dr. Owais was born in Egypt. He had dual citizenship in Egypt and the U.S., and she had gone to Egypt for the summer, had taken some Arabic lessons and some scuba lessons and fell in love and had an affair. Mm. And 
Owais, Dr. Owais had come over about a week before uh, the murder of his wife and learned that she had been unfaithful and physically assaulted her. So we had some corroboration there. Um, she had gone to the U.S. Embassy. They took pictures of her injuries. Uh, he was supposed to stay a couple of weeks, but went on home. And um, she, meanwhile, had consulted, you know, as, as usually happens with matters such as this, the victim's computer was uh, analyzed. There were emails to a divorce lawyer. She was in the process of trying to get a divorce. Mm. Um, the, the lover in Egypt was interviewed. It was pretty clear that uh, his motive was jealousy uh, and anger over her infidelity. She had just returned home from Egypt the night before she was killed. And then there were some other inconsistencies, some th other things that developed in the investigation that made it very clear to us that this was a, a planned attack on her. It wasn't something that happened in the heat of the moment. And we were putting a case together for first-degree premeditated murder. And were those kinds of evidence, uh, evidentiary items you're talking about, Kay, were those things like on his computer, or did he search for how to kill your wife, or did he go out and buy the hammer or whatever the murder weapon was? What, what did that look like? Well, there were a couple of things that happened. We, his, his staff in his office in D.C. was interviewed, and he had actually left his home on the morning of the murder, dressed in his clothing, business clothing, however he would be attired, going to, to his, his clinical office in D.C. to meet with patients. And he had called his office assistant on the phone and said he wasn't feeling well and that he was going back home. He drove a, a red Jetta. Well, the red Jetta was nowhere to be found because what he did was park it somewhere out of sight. And then our theory was that he snuck back into the house so that he would not be seen by anybody and that he planned to kill his wife. Uh, otherwise, what I've just described doesn't make any sense. Um, there was no evidence that he wasn't feeling well. And it didn't make sense that his Jetta would have been you know, found around the corner. So we didn't really have any, there weren't any... Uh, telltale browsing on the internet of, of sites that would indicate anything else, but it was that leaving the home and trying to establish an alibi and trying to be away from the home that made us believe that, that it was premeditated. And then the case really started to come together when Omar came forward to tell the truth about what he knew had happened. That was the son that was there in the house. So um, he was actually, he was actually not asleep then upstairs. Is no, that what you're was. saying? He was asleep. Oh, he was. Um, what he had omitted to say when the police first interviewed him was um, what actually had happened after he came downstairs and found his mother. Got he it. He found his father, the office. So th there was an interior entrance from the basement through the, the stairs that connected the first floor in the basement. And then there was an office um, that was adjacent to the place at the end of the stairs where she was killed. And there was an exterior uh, door that led out to the driveway. And that door was open when Omar came down the stairs. And so he ran out to see, ran out to see who might have been there when, you know, his, his attention was caught by the open door. And he found his father standing in the driveway with a bloody rubber mallet. And, oh, oh my. Yeah. And Omar said, we need to call an ambulance. We need to call the police. And the father said, wait right there. I'm going to go get rid of this hammer and throw it in the creek. Uh, he was gone, uh, not with the red Jetta, but with another car and came back. And, um, and then 
they called the police. And not surprisingly, at that time, Omar was 20 or 21. And, and imagine what a terrible position he was in. He had reason to believe and did believe that his father had killed his mother. It, it, it took him a while to feel that he could come forward and reveal Well, this. and Kay, that makes him um, a difficult witness. I mean, I can only imagine that if this case went to trial, which I'm going to ask you about in a minute, but that you'd have to put Omar on the stand. And that is a very difficult position to put a child in, even though he's an adult now. You're talking about he's already lost his mother, and now he would be an absolutely critical, crucial witness to put his father in prison. Yes, and it's even worse than that. Um, he actually, in terms of, he was, in spite of the withholding of information that that he didn't come forward with, he eventually became, when he decided to tell the truth, was a very cooperative witness. He's a very honorable young man, and he felt that it just, what had happened was wrong, and he just did not feel that he could in good conscience, let his father get away with having murdered his mother. So he wasn't a hostile witness at the trial. He was very cooperative, but he was in a terrible position because the rest of his family completely ostracized him. His mother's family, um, his mother was German and her family was in Germany. None of them came over for the trial, though we were in contact with them. But all of the defendant's family uh, had an older brother and some cousins and all of them completely ostracized Omar during the course of the proceedings. They wouldn't talk to him. Wow. And to make matters worse, the defense was that Omar did it. Oh, man. Wow. And so, but but wait, did they go to the creek and find that mallet? No, they, they went, but they weren't able to find it. It was at least, I want to say, eight to ten days after the murder before Omar came forward. Uh. Um, and so they, they did look. You know, they weren't able to find it. But we, the mallet that he described was, as I mentioned, they had a pool in the backyard. And this mallet was used to, they had sort of those old-fashioned covers that you have, stakes um, that you pound into the ground when you're ready to cover the pool at the end of the season. And that mallet is what they used to drive the stakes in to cover the pool for the season. Its absence was the evidence, I guess? Yes. Well, its absence was the evidence. We also were able to buy a, a, one that was identical. It wasn't admitted into evidence. It was used just used as demonstrative piece of evidence. And the medical examiner um, testified that Marion's injuries were consistent with having been uh, caused by an implement like that. So it was it was vivid. We just didn't have the actual murder weapon. I just right. feel so sad for Omar. I, I was in a similar position, I feel like, in almost every child sexual abuse trial that I had because the child would come forward and sometimes the mother would support the child. Often the mother would not and sat on the other side of the courtroom with the defendant's family, leaving the child with just a victim witness advocate from my office. It was such a lonely thing, especially, of course, heart-wrenching for a child to go through. But I can only imagine what that was like for Omar to have to testify against his father with all of the relatives on his father's side. Yes, very difficult. And also to know that the defense is that you did it. His father didn't testify, but um, he, at, at some point, that the case was continued several times. The first time because he, uh, his original lawyers, Oasis lawyers, withdrew. They had a an ex parte 
um, discussion with the court and he allowed them to withdraw. But, you know, we theorized that it was probably because he was asking them to put forth this defense that they knew was not true. Who knows? You know, I will never know exactly what happened. But, you know, it was something that his, his next defense attorney had no trouble not just suggesting, but arguing to the jury. And it was ridiculous because the physical evidence didn't, wasn't consistent with that, but it was, it was really all they had. Now, again, no slam dunk case. I don't ever say that, but this was a pretty strong case. By the time it went to trial, it was 2003, continued for uh, several reasons, but this was also before the days of really good information from from cell towers, you know, now we can really pinpoint where a person's cell phone was at a particular point in time. And we had actually tried to figure out where, um, how far away from the house Oase was based on where his cell phone pinged to a tower, uh, where he was when he made that call to his office. But it just, the, the technology wasn't as sophisticated back then. So it's been continued several times. You go to trial, Omar testifies. What what happens? Um, Omar's testimony was riveting. Uh, it was, uh, the, the jury sim- completely sympathized with him. And, you know, part of, part of what we had to do was have him explain why he didn't come forward initially, why he didn't tell about the, the mallet. Um, that also gave the defense a little bit of wiggle room to blame it on him. Um, and that, you know, so that was he, his, his motivations were, we're on trial as much as anything else, but he was a very compelling witness. The physical evidence was very strong. Marianne's blood was on all of those pieces of clothing that were seized from the defendant on the day of his arrest. We had motive. You know, again, that's not something that you have to prove, but juries want to understand why a defendant kills his wife in cold blood like that. We were not permitted. There, there had been, there was some evidence um, of prior domestic abuse, um, not infrequently, um, she would show up at places with dark glasses and long sleeves. So there'd been a history of physical violence. The judge would not allow us to present evidence of that. He did allow us to present evidence. We were able to bring over the witness from the American embassy in, I think it was in Cairo, testified about the injuries that she had seen and the because it was in such close proximity to a confrontation between Dr. Owais and Marianne and the lover that happened the night before Marianne went to the embassy. So we had we, we had that evidence of prior abuse and the motive and and all of that, you know, came together as well as you could reasonably expect under the well, circumstances. Well, and you know, can, can I just um, say th- this is one of the things that I found among many others, but very frustrating as a prosecutor. And when you talk to juries afterward, very frustrating to juries. And that is that the, the defendant's supposed right to a fair trial includes excluding evidence that would show he acted in concert on more than one occasion with what he is accused of doing here. And I think we all would agree that past behavior is a perfect or at least a good indicator of future behavior. And that's just one of the things that I think makes our court system almost a mockery. Because what is more relevant than the fact that he had previously beat up his wife in a case like this when he's accusing his son of, with no apparent motive, having killed his own mother? It just drives me crazy and always drove me crazy about the court system that juries really are kept in the dark 
I had another case, Jim and I've talked about it on another podcast where I had a, a, a dancer who was nearly murdered by her uh, boyfriend. She lost her baby. She lost the use of her arm. He tried to cut her head off with a machete and he was acquitted. And one of the things I told the jury afterward was that he had a previous murder conviction for violence, but the judge wouldn't let me bring it to the jury. And they said to me, well, gosh, if we had known he was a convicted murderer previously, maybe we would have convicted him. And of course, fat lot of good that did then. Well, those are, I mean, those rules or the rules of evidence are yeah. very frustrating, and the, there are limitations on the admissibility of prior bad acts. We do have in Maryland a, a pretty good exception to some of those very strict rules, and it and it it usually is in domestic violence cases, because as you said, there if there is a pattern of violence against the victim, it's called specially relevant evidence in Maryland, and the judge here split the baby. He wouldn't allow the girlfriend to testify about all the times that she'd seen the bruises, but would allow the most relevant, most recent evidence or incident. Um, And so, you know, that's that balancing of probative versus prejudicial, that weighing that the judge has to do. And most of them, you know, most of them will give the defense a little and give the prosecution a little. And that's what happened here. Yeah. But I mean, when you're talking about that probative versus prejudicial, if the person who's on trial did the prejudicial thing, I don't understand why it's prejudicial and not probative. It's just, to me, it just makes no sense. You can only tell the jury a little bit about what this guy did. To me, it's not telling the full story. And I don't think that prejudicial, if it is actually part of the case, if it is the same behavior as in the case, uh, I just don't buy it as being prejudicial at all. Well, the, I guess the question is, is it overly prejudicial? If it's not prejudicial, we don't right. introduce it. Evidence that, is prejudicial. Evidence, from the prosecution. evidence is prejudicial. But, but it's proof. Um, it's proof. It's of, proof. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And particularly, when, I think, again, motive is not an element of the offense, but it's so critical in persuading a jury that the evidence hangs together and and they need to understand why. And and if you can't explain that, sometimes juries are like, well, I, it doesn't make right. sense to me. And we, we do. Like that. So, okay. So you're back in that hell we've discussed before. You've closed, you've argued, you've done the best you could. You put up every piece of evidence that you know in the case. You're waiting on a verdict. I assume you got a call at some point that there is one. Yes, I was in my office talking with my co-counsel. Um, I believe that the detectives were there. To the best of my recollection, Omar was there in my office. And because he really couldn't hang out in the halls where all the defendant's family were hanging out. And we got a call from the clerk that there was a verdict. And we went down. And I remember it, it was one of those courtrooms that you could just feel the hostility from the defense people, from the family. And Omar walked with us and came and sat in the front row on the other side from the defendant's family. And we're big people. I'm a big girl. It never bothered me. But I I just remember feeling, and I have a son who was about Omar's age at the time, feeling how sad for him it was that he was alone at a time when he needed somebody, uh, not knowing what the verdict was going to be. Yeah. Um, and and understanding that even if it were guilty, which he he did hope that his father would be convicted, understanding that he played a key role in that, and and that's not an easy thing to have to live with for anybody. No, of course not. So what happens? Uh, so uh, the foreman gave the 
verdict form to the clerk, who then showed it to the judge, who gave it back to the clerk, and the clerk read the verdict, and he was found guilty. Oh, thank goodness. I was worried yeah, about my status. Jim, I'm sitting yeah. here sweating yeah. in New Orleans. <laughs> yeah. I know. And, and, and did they go to sentencing right away, or did they have a no, break before sentencing? It's unusual um, for sentencing to happen that quickly in Montgomery County. There was a pre-sentence report, investigation report prepared, and um, we had it some weeks down the road. And he was sentenced to 30 years in prison. So 30 years. Kate, did you consider that to be a, a, an adequate, a good sentence? Well, I did because Oase was 58 years old at the time, and he would have had to serve um, at least two-thirds of that, and he was in poor health. Uh, that was one of the reasons that he asked for, you know, he wanted probation, of course, but um, I thought there was a good chance that he would um, live out the rest of his life behind bars, and so that was that was satisfying. I thought that it was adequate. Well, and so, Kay, we have to ask you the question that we ask everybody. Was this a best case or a worst case for you? I would say it was the best and the worst. Uh, it was one of the worst in terms of seeing the impact of a defendant's crime on his family. His wife's family was devastated by her loss. Her sons were devastated. It had such an impact on Omar in spite of being such a great young man. He actually became somewhat of a family friend and had him to my home to visit with me and my children. We went out to eat. Um, he had no mother figure. So that, I thought, in, in, in that way was worst. It was also the best because we got such a good a good outcome and because I felt like we were able to make a difference in helping Omar to to heal and to move on with his life. Thank you so much, Kay, for joining us on Best Case, Worst Case. And we hope to get you back again to tell us about another one of the cases from your incredibly interesting career. Thank you for having me. I'd love to come back. All right. Well, till next time, thank you for listening to Best Case, Worst Case. Best Case, Worst Case is an XG production. Produced by Jim Clementi at Empire Studios, L.A. Engineered and edited by Mike Thal. Music composed and performed by Simba Sumba. And hosted by Wonder. You can listen to Best Case, Worst Case on your favorite listening app. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to do something about child sexual abuse, Darkness Delight can help. Did you know that more than 90% of the time children are sexually abused by someone they know? Jim, this isn't about stranger danger. It's about learning the true risks. Darkness to Light's training can help prevent, recognize, and react to child sexual abuse in your community. When you make the decision to get involved, kids can be protected. It starts with you. Visit www.d2l.org to take the training and learn more. That's d, the number two, l.org.